Our sermon text this evening is Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. And let us stand. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, as we hear these words, we we know that they have their place for us in the Christian life. They are words that we need to hear. They represent truths and, and meaning that go all the way down, not only to who we are, but who you are as a God who is just. And so, Father, this evening, as we hear your word, help us to Listen carefully to it, that we might submit ourselves to it and live by it. And all this to the glory of Christ. And even as we hear the gospel this evening, Father, we pray that it would cause our hearts to be lifted up and to rejoice and to be encouraged of all that you've promised to us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A person's last words on this earth says something, not just about them, but many times those words are quite revealing about their last hope, or perhaps even reflect upon their life and their lack of hope. And uh, for many of us who have have been with a loved one dying, it can be a moment of of just tremendous encouragement uh, when when their faith is really coming out and their strong confidence in Christ and the and the promise of eternal life that we have in him. But that's not always the case. And uh, you can go and research and find these things. I've done this before. You can only do so much of it, because before long you just start to cry. When you read of very famous people who lived large and seemed to have everything uh, that they could ever possibly want, and yet in that moment of death, uh, it's quite revealing. Sometimes true to personality, Charlie Chaplin uh, was dying, and it was a priest who said, May the Lord have mercy on your soul. And he said, why not? Maybe trying to be funny in a moment when it seems to me humor is, is just not right. John Belushi, 
Now, some of us grew up knowing him as an actor when he was dying, said, just don't leave me alone. It's interesting, Chris Farley said something almost word for word from that when, when he was dying. Bob Marley said, money can't buy life. And Joan Crawford, it's interesting, when she was dying, her housekeeper began to pray, and she said this, don't you dare ask God to help me. Perhaps one of the most terrifying ones to me was Frank Sinatra. His last words were, I'm losing. I'm losing. Revealing words for how these people died and how they saw themselves and how they reflected upon their lives and its meaning and their lack of hope. How different it was for the case uh, for one of the founders of our denomination, J. Gresson Machen. Some of you know exactly the story I'm about to tell. Uh, that he was out in North Dakota despite... Um, uh, what his doctor told him, uh, he went there anyway. He was already sick, but he wanted to go preach in these churches in, in North Dakota that had stood strong and faithful at the very beginning of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's the middle of winter. It's incredibly cold. And he contracted pneumonia from which he would die on January 1st, 1937. But it was at that time that he sent a telegraph to his friend John Murray, a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And these were his dying words. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. There was this hope in death, his dying words, that his life was built upon Christ and his righteousness. But what he said, those last words, is no hope without it. And our text, in a manner of speaking, reminds us of that this evening, given who God is, the God that we, we claim to serve, this true and the living God, and what he claims for himself is a God who is righteous and judge. Who are we? That we would rejoice in going to see him. What is our hope? Do we dare to even contemplate something like what Machen is saying? I hope that will be the case by the time that we, were, we are done. But first, we have to head through some deep waters here. The point is really pretty straightforward, and he repeats it a couple times, so it's not difficult to understand what he's saying, and he even illustrates it for us. So you can see the outline on the back of your, your handout this evening. You see the key word this evening is deserves. So here's a heading. Verse 6 is kind of a heading for everything he's going to say in these 11 verses, that God will render to each one according to his works, according to his, his labors. And that word render means to pay. You're going to pay somebody for, for their work and what that labor deserves. It's a word that can be positive or negative. It could mean that you're going to reward somebody. They did good work, or it means that you might punish them. It's used this way in Matthew chapter 16, 27, where Christ says, The Son of Man will come and repay, repay each according to what he has done. Uh, Paul uses it positively in 2 Timothy 4.8. The righteous judge will award me a crown of righteousness on that day, obviously very positive. Or Revelation twenty two twelve, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, repaying everyone what they deserve. That's what he's saying, is that therefore God is going to pay everyone their wages. He's going to compensate everyone for the merits of, of their life, good or bad. And then verses 7 through 10, he, he shows us this. He illustrates it. He shows you that what you sow in deeds, God is going to give with an exact harvest. You will reap what you sow. And to all who seek what is good, namely glory and honor and mortality, he says God is going to reward that person with eternal life. But the person whose life is one of self-ambition 
And where they did not obey the truth uh, that was revealed to them, the truth of the gospel, who obeyed unrighteousness, God will give them wrath and fury. Or to put it another way, in verse 9, if you do evil, you will receive tribulation and distress. But notice what he says, for the Jew first and also the Greek. And flip it, verse 10, those who do good, glory, honor, and peace to the Jew first and also the Greek. Why does he say that? Well, it's true of the Jew first. Think of what the Old Testament shows us, that if salvation begins with Israel, because theirs are the prophets, theirs is the Messiah, theirs is the light of God's revelation, if salvation begins there, then judgment begins there with Israel. Why? Because theirs are the prophets. Theirs is the Messiah. Theirs is that greater revelation given to him. They are more accountable. And his words kind of lean that direction. He's speaking more to his Jewish audience than he is to a Gentile audience. Because, he says, God shows no partiality. There's no partiality when it comes to God's justice, whether you are Jewish or or you're Greek or a Gentile, whoever. And so he's repeating what he said in verse 6, that he gives uh, what each person deserves. There's no favoritism with our God. He's actually incapable of favoritism. So Peter says in Acts 10.34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Peter in 1 Peter 1.17 says that God judges each man um, without being partial. So God repays each person according to what they deserve with, with perfect equity because God cannot set aside his character. He can't compromise who he is. This absolute excellence of his righteousness and in holiness, this purity of who he is. He is the same from beginning to end. He is altogether righteous. That's what he is undergirding his point with here in these opening verses. But when we turn to verses 12 through 15, which I've entitled what God deserves, a Jewish person hearing this could say, no, wait a second, that's not true. God has shown us favoritism. God has given to us the law from Moses. And Paul says that is irrelevant as far as sin is concerned. Whether you sin with the knowledge of the law or you sin without the knowledge of the law, it makes no difference. Look what he says. Those who sin without the law, they'll perish without the law. And those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Both sin and both sin against the same God. They sin against his righteousness. That's the very foundation of the law, so it makes no difference whether there's a law written upon the human heart or it's written on stone. The ultimate standard is the same. It's God and his justice. There might be different measures, but it's the same ultimate standard, and it is God. Consider a grape hyacinth flower. I've never used a flower analogy ever in the pulpit ever in my life. So it's the first time. And you ask me how big it is. Well, in the United States, we would say it's about six inches. If you go to Europe, they say it's 15 centimeters. It's the same length, different measures. It doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or a Jew or a Gentile. You're sinning against the same God. It's the same standards. And that's what Paul is saying. The law is irrelevant if you're not obeying it. If you're not obeying what's in your heart, if you're not obeying what God has revealed through Moses, hearing the law is not going to justify you. Merely having the law, that's not going to save you. That's an empty boast. Obeying the law, now that's what counts. And the Gentiles prove it. They who do not have the law do what the law requires. And the Gentiles prove, he says, it's not about what you hear, it's about what you do. 
So look what he says. The Gentiles do by nature what the law requires. I have a Gentile neighbor. He doesn't murder his, other, his neighbors. He doesn't steal from them. He's kind to them. He's loving. He says they're showing that God's moral will is engraved upon their hearts. And so he says in a manner of speaking, they have a law for themselves. And this law functions for them the same way the law functions for the Jewish person. It bears witness to what is right, to their conscience, he says. It defends them when when they obey it, and it accuses them when they do not. And he's kind of hinting at what an embarrassment this is for those that know better, for those that have the greater revelation. They have the oracles of God revealed to them by the prophets. Those who know about God's holiness and his righteousness, they know him for his eternal glory and blessedness. And those who have this greater revelation, they know that these things demand their obedience. This God demands their obedience. Now, just in case we misconstrue verse 13, Paul is not saying anyone can be justified by obeying the law. And you might be saying, well, it sure sounds as if that's exactly what he's saying in verse 13. Verse 13 says, it is those who obey the law who will be justified. So is that what he means? No. Paul's very clear about this and what he teaches in other places. Galatians 2.15, by observing the law, no one will be justified. Ephesians 2, 1-6 makes this very clear that we're justified not by works, but through faith. It's by God's grace. Romans 3.28, we're justified by faith. His point here is not to prove how a person is justified, but he's trying to establish that standard that must be met. Perfect obedience. This is what God deserves. This is what God requires. And so as he speaks to his Jewish audience, those perhaps who lack good works, he says that you're not going to escape God's judgment any more than a Greek or a Gentile. God will not show you favoritism on this. He cannot. His righteousness is making this demand. So you could say Paul is comparing here the hypothetical and the practical. In Romans 2, Paul affirms the principle that doing the law leads to salvation, but in, when we come to chapter 3, he'll deny the reality that somebody could actually do it. That somebody could actually obey the law perfectly, which is what God deserves. In theory, justification could be secured through works. In reality, no, it's not done. It can't be done because of sin. Sin prevents us from achieving this. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. So he comes back to verse 16 to the underlying principle of God's righteousness. And he talks about that day that is coming when God will render to everyone what everyone deserves. Look at verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's saying that God will judge us according to our actions, but also according to our hearts. Those actions, even those secret ones, God will give us what we deserve. All will Uh, be rendered according to their deeds, he says, whether it's for reward or for punishment. But according to our hearts, even he'll lay bare those those secret thoughts, those things whispered in a corner will be shouted from the rooftops. God will give everyone what they deserve because this is the God who searches the heart and the mind. And he does this because the terms of judgment are the same for all. This is the justice of God. And he is righteous. He always has been. He always Will be. So who can stand in that day? Who will be able to stand before God and claim a perfect life and claim perfect 
obedience. Who in, in their dying bed can look back upon their life and, and make a boast before God in their dying words lay claim to this, this life that was the envy of everybody? You can make it personal and ask yourself, what will be your hope? What will be your dying words that express what's in your heart, what you truly trust in, what you believe in? What will be your hope? For every Christian, our hope is in Christ and in his obedience. You could put it simply, it's in what Christ paid and what Christ did. It's, it's in what Christ endured for us, what we deserve and what Christ provides for us, namely what God deserves. You see, this text forces us to make a great comparison between what God deserves and what, what we deserve we owe God perfect obedience. He deserves nothing less than that. And God owes us punishment for our disobedience. And we deserve nothing less than that. What should sinners expect from a holy God who says the wages of sin is death? It shows us, it exposes us what we need. We need somebody to do what we cannot do. And that's where we think of Christ, who endured what you and I deserve, that he suffered and paid the wages of our sin, that that obedience of Christ, which was forged in in the furnace of trial and temptation and suffering, that he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death upon a cross, and there he bore the condemnation of our sin and what all of our disobedience deserved. And we think of this, that God cannot withhold the punishment of his son. Why? Because our text tells us he cannot show favoritism. Not even to the substitute for our sin. It's what Christ endured, but it's also what Christ provides. He provides for us what God deserves. And what does he deserve? God deserves perfect obedience. Every thought and word and and action and deed that that it comes out of a, a perfect heart. Every thought that is fueled by Christ who says, I delight to do your will, O Father. Every word that pours from his mouth, absolutely perfect and sinless, and has the sound and the ring of power and authority, and is filled and dripping with grace and truth, who has the words of eternal life, and every deed, every miracle, every uh, performance of healing. He says, behold, I have come to do your will. And the Father looks upon all this and he says, this is my son with whom I will please. This is perfection. So we could say that Christ endured all that God's wrath exacted, but he fulfilled all that God's righteousness required. Machen thought of it this way, that Christ's passive obedience, what he endured for us, enables us to escape hell. But Christ's active obedience, what he provides for us, this gives us a right to heaven. By the obedience of Christ, passively we escape hell, actively we have the right to enter heaven. And you see, we have a right to, to think of, of the gospel this way and to think of what we gain from Christ by simply asking this final question. What is it that Christ deserves? So we have to understand that our salvation in Jesus Christ is not hypothetical, it's not theoretical. We're talking about what is actual. What did he do? What did he accomplish 
And though we might say that Paul affirms in principle that obeying the law leads to salvation, but he denies the reality that anyone can do it, we know that there is there's one exception. And it's Christ. Christ, who does the very things in this text, who persisted in, in doing good, who truly sought the glory of God and honor and immortality with the best of motives. And so what does God give the Son? He gives to the Son what he deserves, glory and honor and immortality. And the Father looks upon that perfect obedience of his Son's life. He sees the satisfaction of his death, and, and God cannot deny the good work of the Son. He cannot hold back the just reward that the Son deserves, and therefore he exalts the Son, as Philippians 2.9 says. But it also means that he cannot deny us the merit of the work of Christ. He cannot deny us all the benefits that Christ purchased for us by his death and his resurrection. This is not hypothetical. This is the reality and the true state that we have before our God and what he did for us. This is his sure promise that God does not repay us according to our iniquities. He does not pay us according to what we deserve. He gives to us according to what the obedience of Christ deserves which means the forgiveness of our sins. It means our being accepted as righteous in the sight of God. It means our being adopted into his family and loved from this day forward to eternity. This is what flows from this perfect obedience and sacrificial death of Christ. Because you see, it all hinges upon this, that God cannot show favoritism. That if God does not spare his own son, all the penalty that our sin deserves, that it also means that he cannot withhold from us all the benefits that our Savior's death deserves. How can the Father deny such obedience and such sacrifice and what it has earned for us? The Father cannot show favoritism. He cannot be partial. He cannot be unrighteous. He must be perfectly just and and to grant to us any and every blessing that Christ has purchased for us. Think of the cross. We've talked about this before. Just as the cross shows us that God cannot deny his righteous character, it also shows us that God cannot deny the righteousness of his son. The cross shows us that God cannot let sin go unpunished, but it also shows us that God cannot let such obedience go unrewarded. And this is the backbone of the promise that we have in 1 John 1, 9. If if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's built upon that righteousness. He cannot deny what his son has done and what he has done for us. That we have this righteousness of Christ because our sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us, credited to our account. It's reckoned as ours. Ours is this, this righteousness, this perfect and pure and matchless and glorious Righteousness of Christ. As I said about a month ago, William Cunningham puts it this way, this is the righteousness which God's righteousness required him to require. And this is your righteousness. This is how you stand before God. This is how you will stand before him, before his throne in the great day of judgment. In other words, the gospel tells us that God does not give us what we deserve. God gives to us what we need. We need Christ. And he's freely offered to us to receive by faith. It's all because of Christ that he died a death that you and I could not endure. 
He settled a debt that you and I could not pay. He gained a victory that you and I could not obtain because he won a salvation that you and I do not deserve. My brothers and sisters, deeper than all the depravity of all of our sin is a reality of what Christ has done and the righteousness that is won for us. So that every day, not just on our deathbed, every day we can thank God for the active obedience of Christ because we know there's no hope without it. Let us pray. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you for your word, even as we hear these stiff and bracing words of the God who is just in everything he says and all that he does and the great judgment that is coming. But to know that our judgment is behind us and even as we read responsively this evening already that that great day will be a day of acquittal and acknowledgement. The day when the righteousness of Christ in which we trust and which we stand will be secure and will secure us. We thank you for this hope. And we pray, Father, for those this evening, perhaps who do not feel strong about this hope, who are unsure or confused. Oh, Father, may the light of your grace and your truth come piercing through confusion and doubt, even unbelief, and show them your Son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.